Well, it has been quite a long time since we have had the opportunity to continue in our series on defending your faith, and tonight I want to do just that. I want us to take the opportunity to bring ourselves back to this series, having not had this opportunity in quite some time. I want to do a little bit of review for you, and even for some of you who have not been here and have been availed of this particular series for quite a number of weeks, I want to do a little bit of review. You remember that as we started this series, Defending Your Faith, we began to say that we were going to divide this series into two very broad categories. We said that if a Christian is going to endeavor to defend his or her faith, that they were going to have to do so in two broad ways. One was that he was going to have to defend his or her faith by defending it offensively. That is, that a Christian is supposed to take within himself the knowledge and the understanding of Scripture by taking it on the offensive. That is, we take our task of Christianity out to people. We learn, we understand the Word of God, we study it so as to understand what we ourselves believe, and then when we approach others, we take that very proactive stance. We tell them what we believe because not only do we believe it, but we want to proclaim it. We study the Scripture for the sake, in other words, of evangelism. We want to be evangelistic. We do what the Apostle Paul enjoins us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We want to do everything we can to take the gospel to people. We're not simply monks in an enclave somewhere asking for people to come to us. We go to them. And that's why I have given you this series defending your faith. Scripture should be for us like a spiritual weapon so that when it is in the hands of the Christian, he can take the initiative to share that word under the power of the Holy Spirit, believing that God will take his word and from it bring forth great spiritual fruit. And so if you were to take the offensive approach, not the offensive approach, but the offensive one, and take the gospel to a watching world, you would do well in that way. If you know what you, you believe, if you have a confidence, a firm grasp on divine truth, then you can take that word in the matter of proactively taking it and sharing it with unbelievers. And what were those divine truths during the first part of the series that we covered? What biblical information did we gain a grasp well, we, we studied a number of things. You remember, we studied, first of all, the doctrine of Scripture, or the doctrine of Bibliology. What does the Bible teach? And you remember, we did a number of messages in that particular section. We talked about, first of all, the sufficiency of Scripture. And then we talked about what God's Word says in the matter of divine revelation, both natural and special. And then we moved on to the doctrine of theology proper or the study of God himself, his person and his work. And then we moved on to the doctrine of the Trinity 
what the Bible says both about the Trinity in its biblical definitions and also in its theological ones. And then we moved on proactively studying the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of Christology. We studied the deity of Christ. And then we moved on and studied the doctrine of justification, that is, how a man is made right with God. And then for that offensive section, we took a look at the doctrine of sanctification, that is, how you live the Christian life. We spent eight messages working our way through that first broad category in the matter of defending our faith. And then we moved on, after studying those crucial elements, we switched gears and we went on the defensive. And we did that because Christianity is not just a matter of taking the gospel and penetrating the hearts of unbelievers out in our world, but it also means that some people will eventually come to you. They will challenge you with regard to what they believe and why you should believe it also. And so in some ways, it is also true that if you do not always take the gospel out to a watching world, in very often cases they will bring what they believe to you. And, of course, it will be different in some cases as to what you believe, and so you will have to defend yourself. That is precisely what the Apostle Peter says when he talks in 1 Peter 3.15 with this language. Be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. We are, according to Peter then, supposed to take a reactive position. Not just a proactive one, but also a reactive one, defending what you believe by those who challenge what and why you believe as you do. One of the first ways we saw that a person often has to defend what they believe is by the challenge of cults. And we discussed, as you remember, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian science and whether or not Seventh-day Adventists are true believers and even the Unification Church or the Moonies. We talked in several messages about the cults and how they will often knock on your door. And we had a good interactive time where I gave you the scenario of a, of a cult person knocking on your door and saying, this is what I believe. How would you defend what you believe? And we even had interaction from the congregation. And you would say, this is how I would defend my faith in that sense. And so I thought we had a very, very good time, a challenging time of recognizing what and how you would defend your faith. And then we began to talk about another aspect of defending your faith, being reactive. And that was to understand the great monotheistic religions. That is, those religions that believe in just one God. And you remember, of course, that we studied Christianity. That was the first eight parts. That's the great monotheistic religion. But then we also studied the religion of Judaism. The religion of Judaism. And we also studied Roman Catholicism. We took three messages to study Roman Catholicism because, Catholicism because we looked at their doctrine of salvation and how it's different from the Protestant view, our view. We looked also at the doctrine of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. And we also looked at other doctrines in Roman Catholicism like purgatory and indulgences and the veneration or worship of Mary. It's been an amazing series in the sense that we have looked at a number of religious issues, a number of doctrinal themes. 
I want to pursue this. I want to go further because there is another monotheistic religion. In fact, there's really only one other that we won't cover in this series called Zoroastrianism. It's so bizarre and obtuse that there's really no one around where we live who is often involved in refuting that. And so we won't cover that in this series. But one thing we need to do when we talk about monotheism, monotheistic religion, is to cover the religion of Islam. That is what we want to do tonight. And as I began to read and study, and I've had quite a bit of time to do that. In fact, some of the staff pastors were laughing at me the other day because I had some of my books stacked up in my office to study on the religion of Islam. And they were laughing at me because I had 14 books stacked up there that in some way relate to the religion of Islam. And of course they said to me, you're not going to be sharing all that information, are you? And I said, no, 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 I won't be sharing all of it. You know, the, the challenge of anyone who speaks publicly is the challenge of condensing all of the things that you read and study down to something that's both manageable and comprehensible. And so I'll let you decide after the end of tonight whether or not I've achieved such a goal. What I want to do tonight is to give you the religion of Islam in three ways. Now, we're not going to be able to go through all of them. In fact, really, all we're able, going to be able to do tonight is to give you the first of three outlines in our study of Islam. We'll have to pick it up next time because, frankly, as I was talking to some folks before the service began, the religion of Islam is extremely complex. I myself never quite understood until I began to read in this area all of the complexities of the religion of Islam. It's extremely complex and it is multifaceted. And so what I want us to do is to basically understand with the first outline point coming tonight and the next two next time, is to study, first of all, the origin and history of Islam. The origin and history of Islam. And that's what we're going to cover tonight. And then next time, I want to look at the theology and practice of Islam. The theology and practice of Islam. And then finally, and I believe maybe even most importantly, how to reach out to those who are Muslims. How to reach out to those who are Muslims. Now I want you to sit back tonight. I want you to listen to me. You may not be able to gather all that I'm going to tell you by way of writing it down. In fact, you'll be very frustrated with me because I'm going to give you a number of pieces of information about Islam. And the reason I want to do that is to give you at least in terms of the North American sense of Islam, a lot of information in a machine gun approach that gives you the sheer weight of information about the complexities of this religion and how widespread it really is. Islam can trace its origins back to its founder, Muhammad, and that is the first place we have to go. How many of you were aware that Muhammad was the founder of Islam? Now that is pretty common knowledge. Just about everyone who understands anything about religion, and in fact, you may yourself, if you've gone uh, to college somewhere, you may have even gone through a comparative religion class in which you studied Islam. Muhammad is surely the founder. He was born in 570 A.D. in Mecca, 
which is in Saudi Arabia. Muhammad grew up as a shepherd boy, and then he became a caravan trader until the age of 25. When he was 25, Muhammad married a woman who was between somewhere between 39 and 40, who was obviously almost 15 years older than he, who had been twice widowed before marrying him. They had two sons and four daughters. Their youngest daughter, Fatima, was the only child who actually lived to full adulthood, and she married Muhammad's uncle's son, Ali. And in the year 610 A.D., at the age of 40, that is when Muhammad began the process of what he says was a series of receiving divine revelations for which he ultimately said he became then a prophet so that he could give these revelations to the world. Now he claimed that he received these revelations from the angel Gabriel in a cave. And while he doesn't explicitly say that, the religion of Islam says that it in fact was Gabriel that first appeared to him. It was a masculine being who was, of course, re uh, later reported to be the angel Gabriel and that it was a sign from God himself that Muhammad was to be God's divine prophet. Now, three years later, after that series of revelations in the cave, he began preaching publicly and he preached mainly a message that was about God and the coming judgment. He believed, of course, in one God, and that's why the religion of Islam is monotheistic, a belief in one God. And he continued to preach and teach these things for the next 23 years until he died in 632 A.D. Now, one of the ways that present-day Muslims, and by the way, when you're speaking of Islam, it is the religion of Islam, and those who follow the religion of Islam are called Muslims. Uh, you might be able to call it the Muslim religion, as we do uh, when we say the Christian religion, but technically speaking, it is the religion of Islam with those who follow it, those adherents, are called Muslims. And one of the ways that present-day Muslims try to, to substantiate that Muhammad was indeed, God, was indeed God's prophet was to say this, Muhammad was illiterate, and he could not read or write. And so, when God visited him in this series of divine revelations, Gabriel, or whoever that masculine being was, told Muhammad to write down the things that he was receiving, and that God, of course, gave him a supernatural ability to read and write that which he had never known before. And that is a big, big point within Islam. And they try to substantiate the idea that it must have been God and it must have been divine revelation because he was not able to read or write before this time. Thus, they would say that the Islamic Bible, the Quran, is therefore inspired by God because Muhammad wouldn't have known how or what to write. Indeed, they would even point to a particular verse in the Quran, Surah 29:48, which reads this, and thou, Muhammad, that is, O Muhammad, wast not a reader of any scripture before it, nor didst thou write it with thy right hand, for then might those have doubted who follow falsehood. Unquote. In other words, this religion is from God because before he did not write anything. 
But afterwards, what he wrote was Scripture, and if he wrote it in his right hand, it would be for those who follow the true God. And if he did not, then those who have followed him have followed him in vain. They, of course, believe that he is the follower of God, he is the prophet of God. And, of course, others would contend that Muhammad was simply plagiarizing that which he had grown up with. He, of course, lived in a particular area for which Judaism would have been known at least to some detail. Christianity would not have been known uh, because, obviously, the issue of the translation and the communication of the real Bible, our Bible, the Old and New Testaments, would not have come to him at that time in such rapid-fire succession with the examination and proliferation of Scripture. And so he wouldn't have been that uh, aware of Scripture as you and I have come to be aware of it. And in fact, he probably had very little knowledge of Christianity, probably a much broader understanding of Judaism, but not much of Christianity. Now, even though Muhammad was a monogamous man as he was a husband to his wife, she died at the age of 65. And in the 10 years after her death, he married 11 other women, including a girl named Aisha, who was somewhere between 6 to 9 years old at the time. She was the daughter of his best friend. He also had concubines, who were mostly slave women to which he had sexual relations. And in fact, many Muslim scholars think that he married all of these ladies because he did so for either religious or political or social or economic or for some other strategic reason. That's what he did. Even the Quran, by the way, in Surah 4.3 says that Muslim men can marry up to four women. Clearly, their morality in this area of marriage would not square with the commands of Christianity. Now, after Muhammad died in June of 632 A.D., four men and four successive men uh, followed him in the promotion and proliferation of this religion. First of all, his best friend, Abu Bakr, then Umar, then Uthman, and then his son-in-law, Ali. And they all worked for the expansion of Islam over the known world at that time. And in the first 100 years of Islam's existence, Muslims conquered vast areas of the known world, and of course, for the most part, by force. It's interesting to, to read that almost 90% of the land that they conquered through war and bloodshed was considered Christian at the time. You say, why is that interesting? Well, if you were to talk to someone today who was a Muslim, they would be very, very sensitive about a particular period of their existence, and that is the Crusades. If you know anything about history, you know that Christians, or those who are in the name of Christians, began to take back some of this land uh, that had been taken away from them, and through those Crusades, mainly under the auspices of the Roman Catholic Church, they began again by bloodshed to fight back this Muslim enterprise, and they took back much of this land, and they, of course, killed many, many Muslims, and they are very, very sensitive, even to this day, about the issue of those Crusades, and as a result of that, they are very, very antagonistic 
many of them toward Christianity. Maybe not always outwardly, but they link that back to the issue of the Crusades. But of course, in the history of the world, even before the Crusades, the Muslims did the very same thing to those who would name the name of Christ. John Taylor, in his book, The World of Islam, says this, The Crusades were not launched in the spirit of Christian love of one's neighbor or enemy. They were launched for reasons of greed, for wealth and territory, of intolerance toward the Eastern churches, and of ignorance and arrogance towards Islam. It is true that the Crusades were horrendous. It is true that they were unchristian. And those who would call themselves Christian, who would try to take back land and people by force, of course have no business naming themselves Christians at all. But let it be known that even before these crusades and the rollback of these Christian lands back against the Muslims, before that ever started, the Muslims themselves were over against the Christians and did the same thing by war and bloodshed. Now, when you come to the 18th century, and I know I'm going very, very fast, and I do that because I don't want to either bore you or bring you to a place of nitpicky details. When you come to the 18th century and on into the early 20th century, Islam was on the decline because of these crusades, because of the waning influence, because they were physically forced out of their homelands in many, many cases, and because of the stamping out of Islam by Roman Catholicism and others, it hit the skids. But, in so many ways, in our day, Islam has taken not a decline but an incline. It is moving and it is moving fast. It has really only been in the latter part of the 20th century and certainly now into the 21st century that Islam, Islam is on the rise. And boy, is it on the rise. One particularly helpful book by Norman Geisler and a man who is going under a pseudonym who is obviously an Arab who does not want his real name revealed, who is named Abdul Salib in the book as a co-author, they say this, Islam has rapidly grown to be the second largest religion in the world with almost one billion adherents. Nearly one in every five persons on earth. Isn't that amazing? This is a religion to be studied, beloved, because one out of every five persons on the planet is a Muslim. In the United States, there are presently more Muslims than Methodists. Isn't that amazing to think of? Bruce McDowell, who, by the way, happens to be the missions pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, which was pastored by the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and another Islam expert, Anis Zaka, write in their very, very excellent book, Muslims and Christians at the Table. They write this. In 1965, the United States passed an historic immigration act that ended over four decades of legal racism. The Johnson-Reed Act of 1924 had effectively barred Asian and African immigrants, as had the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. With the change in immigration laws came immigrants from around the world, including at least 60 Islamic nations. Today, 14% of legal immigrants to the United States each year are Muslims. 
Since the 1980s, over one million immigrants have arrived each year, mostly from Asia and the Hispanic world. Now, American Muslims are estimated to be 42% African American, 24.4% Asian Indian, 12.4% Arab, 5.2% African, 3.6% Persian, 2.4% Turk, 2% South Asian, 1.6% American White, and 5.6% Other. They live throughout the whole country, but are concentrated in 22 major cities. In other words, the greatest concentration of Muslims are in 22 of our larger cities across the country. You might be interested to know that there are over 500,000 Iranians who live in Southern California, most of them being considered Muslim. 100,000 in Texas, with 35,000 alone in Houston. 100,000 in Washington, D.C. You'll also be interested to note that in Los Angeles, it is now the second largest Iranian city outside of Iran itself, second only to Istanbul, Turkey. Wouldn't that be an interesting statistic for them to realize that the second largest city of concentrated Muslims who are Iranians is Los Angeles, California. Not any Arab country. First, of course, being Istanbul, Turkey. 250,000 Iraqis are in the United States, 70,000 in Detroit, 30,000 in California, and 15,000 in Chicago. And the vast majority of all that I just gave you in that grouping are Muslims. Not every one of them, but the majority of them. Islam is the fastest growing religion in the United States of America. The fastest growing. Remember I said to you that Mormonism is the fastest growing cult in the world. Islam, the fastest growing religion. The growth rate is at least 4% annually in the United States, and it could be as high as 6%. You say, what's that growth attributable to? Well, it's attributable to immigration to our country from Islamic countries, a high birth rate in Muslim families, that means they're having a lot of babies, and conversions, particularly among African Americans. There are estimated to be over 25,000 conversions to Islam per year in the United States. Between 3 and 8 million Muslims live in the United States of America, between 3 and 8 million. And some say that the most likely figure could even be 5 million. It's growing so fast. Muslims claim that there are over 6 million here. It means that there are more Muslims than in Libya, more Muslims here than Episcopalians and Presbyterians combined. Their number is expected to exceed the number of American Jews which is 5.7 million soon, if it has not already. It's incredible to think of the impact of Islam even on our own country. The Chicago metropolitan area alone has 350,000 Muslims and 100 mosques or Islamic centers. The New York City area, which you might assume would be proliferated with Muslims, has twice that many 700,000 Muslims in New York City alone. Why wouldn't that be a great place if you were 
touched in your heart with Muslim evangelism. 700,000. The largest share of converts from the native-born population of, of Islam are from the African-American community, blacks in the United States, numbering around 2 million. Among native-born American converts to Islam, 85% Islam, are African-American and 12% are white. And listen to this statistic. Sadly, at least 80% of these American converts to Islam were raised in Protestant churches. 80%. One authority on Muslim evangelism estimates that by the year 2020, just 19 years from now, most of our urban centers will be predominantly Islam. Could very well be that those 22 cities could be predominantly populated by the religion of Islam. And I think, beloved, that's precisely why we need to concern ourselves with defending our faith against the encroaching religion of Islam. If it is the second fastest growing religious movement in the world, it must be dealt with and reckoned with. Another writer has surmised that it is common now to see five people a week converted to Islam in each of our United States cities, ten predominantly African-American mosques and churches. And now there is an average of one new mosque that is opening for worship per week in the United States. Amazing. In 1995, there were 1,200 mosques, 165 Islamic schools, 426 Islamic associations, approximately 90 Islamic publications, 12 national Islamic organizations around the country. Incredible the growth. Even in Philadelphia alone, there are 16 different sects of Islam, sort of like denominations or affiliations, 16 different recognized sects, with some researchers even believing that there are 70 distinct groups of Muslims in the United States alone. That's why it's so complex. 70 different brands, 70 different hybrids. You couldn't really speak to any one Muslim, I don't think, and be able to understand exactly what Islam is all about because they have their own particular spin. Of all those various groups, those 70 or so, how can we grasp, how can we gain a good understanding of what this, this multifaceted religion is really all about? It's, it's not a monolith. It's, it's made up of so many different things and issues and understandings. How can we understand it? Well, I think one of the ways that we can understand it, especially tonight, is to really work ourselves away from certain stereotypes. I think probably all of us are bit with the stereotypical bug often. We have been raised to think certain things and to react in certain ways. There's another very, very helpful book, and I brought it tonight just to show you by George Brazel, named Islam, Its Prophet People's politics and power. It's very, very good. It might even be the single best resource for you as you study the religion of Islam, as you arm yourself 
to defend your faith against the second largest or fastest growing religion in the world. And he helps us in this regard when he talks about these stereotypes. Listen to what he says. Western mass media have presented Islam and Muslims in various images and stereotypes. As a result, the majority of people think that most Muslims live in the Middle East. Few know that the largest Muslim-populated nation is Indonesia in Southeast Asia and that tens of millions of Muslims live in Central Asia, China, and India. Few know that there are more Muslims in Great Britain than Methodists, that France is 10% Muslim, that there are more Muslims than Episcopalians in the United States. Some may think that the nation of Islam, we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, that's the group headed up by that uh, man you know as Louis Farrakhan. Some may think that the nation of Islam in the United States is representative of worldwide Islam, whereas the nation of Islam, that's Louis Farrakhan's group, is not acceptable among most Orthodox Muslims. In other words, that's one of those splinter, splinter groups that's very much on the outside of the mainstream of Islam. According to a stereotype, all Arabs are Muslims, but millions of Arabs are Christians. Iranian Muslims are from Indo-European stock, while Arab Muslims and Jews are from Semitic stock. Iranian Shiite Muslims may have more in common with Iraqi Shiite Muslims than with Iraqi Sunni Muslims or Saudi Arabia Sunni Muslims. He goes on to say, recent history brings up vivid images to Westerners. The oil embargo, the Persian Gulf War, airline hijackers, militia groups such as the Mujahideen and the Hamas. The Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran became known as the archetypical Islamic fundamentalist as he hurled the term Great Satan against the United States. The bombers of the World Trade Center building in New York City were depicted as radical Islamic fundamentalists. Some Muslim groups blow up embassies, bomb mosques, explode car bombs in crowded streets, and murder diplomats. And those groups claim credit for the violence and brutality in which innocent women and children often are killed. What does all this mean for Islamic belief and practices? Well, he says we ought to be informed about a different stereotype. He says other images should also inform us. Former President Sadat of Egypt leader of a predominantly Muslim nation, made peace with his neighbor Israel. King Hussein of Jordan signed a peace accord with Israel. During the Persian Gulf War, Islamic nations such as Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia, and others joined with Western nations to fight against Iraq. President Saddam Hussein of Iraq had declared a Muslim holy war against the West as he invaded a neighboring Muslim nation, Kuwait. In other words, it's not just true that they, they have such a hatred of Americans in the West that all Muslims are in league against the West. No, sometimes Muslims are against each other and for good reason. Across the world, Muslims live beside non-Muslim neighbors. Their children attend school together. They work together. They share in community events together. Muslim medical doctors treat non-Muslim patients. Images of Muslims and non-Muslims living out their lives together seldom find a place in media presentations. There are about one billion Muslims. Most of them live, live peaceful lives removed from the violent happenings of the headlines. In other words, because it is the second fastest growing religion in the world, 
they live near you. They're part of our schools. They're part of our, the very fabric of our lives together. They may not, may not always have dark skin. They may not, not always be uh, dark-skinned in the sense that they are from Arabia or that they are from the Middle East. It may not always be that they are dark-skinned in the sense that they are African-American. In fact, one of the fastest-growing aspects of the Islamic religion is working right into the mainstream of the technologically advanced of those who wear suits and who are white Caucasian Americans. Maybe, maybe the most important distinction, at least for us, and maybe that which will conclude our time tonight, is to understand this. When you understand Islam, you understand that it is not always even what is portrayed to us through our own United States mass media. For instance, I mentioned a moment ago Louis Farrakhan. You remember in 1995 when he instigated the Million Man March? It looked as though in many ways that so many people were jumping on the bandwagon. In fact, there were even hundreds if not thousands of white males who joined in that march. Do you remember? Because they agreed with so many of the policies and so many of the ideological principles that Louis Farrakhan was attempting to foist upon the American public. And yet, the nation of Islam is a fringe group within Islam. In fact, in many ways, it doesn't repre really represent Islam at all. And yet, often, that is what is portrayed to us on television and radio and interaction with people, that the nation of Islam, that one small group, probably made up now of only 70 to 100,000, is, in essence, what Islam is. And that's not true. That's not an accurate presentation. The spread of African-American Islam began in 1913. And there was a man by the name of Noble Drew Ali who founded the Moorish Science Temple in Newark, New Jersey. And that's really where the African-American-influenced Islamic religion had its beginnings in our country. Allegedly, he was said to have been commissioned to teach Islam to American Negroes by the Sultan of Morocco. And that's really where it began. A particular sect of Islam founded by Dr. Mufti Muhammad Sadiq of Chicago in 1921 really gave a further prospering of this brand of Islam in America. And in 1930, the first Muslim mosque was started by African Americans in Pittsburgh. And out of this particular group, this Moorish science temple, came a man by the name of Fard Muhammad who founded the Nation of Islam. And we know it, of course, today through its controversial leader, Louis Farrakhan. How many of you have heard Louis Farrakhan speak? Very, very radical ideas, isn't it? In fact, in so many ways, I would submit to you that it is the kind of reverse racism that he foists upon the American public. In fact, if you were to have studied the nation of Islam, not in its original founding, but as it has now come to be known through so many, maybe even popularized these days by movies like Malcolm X 
And some of those things may be even popularized by those who have been influenced by Elijah Muhammad, who was a, found, uh, who was a founder of this sort of nation of Islam bent on the Muslim religion. And this particular man, Elijah Muhammad, was a very popular man. And in the 50s and 60s, he began to influence many, many people, one of which you know as Cassius Clay, or at least you did, until he became Muhammad Ali. And he was a follower of Elijah Muhammad. In fact, almost everywhere you heard him speak, he was foisting upon you the ideas of Elijah Muhammad. He loved Elijah Muhammad. And in turn, Muhammad influenced a number of other people, including a basketball player who played for the UCLA Bruins in college. His name then was Lou Alcindor. You know him now as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So many of these sports personalities, so many business leaders, so many in politics, and especially those who are African American, became heavily influenced by the nation of Islam. But what we have to do is we have to look at some of these stereotypes and say that whatever Louis Farrakhan is all about today, and whatever he's saying, and whatever he's teaching, is a very small, small percentage of what is going on in America today regarding Islam. In fact, they would probably, some of those who would be the much less radicals in this movement, would very much want to distance themselves from Louis Farrakhan, even within their own movement. You say, why? Why would they want to distance themselves from him? Well, because of things like this. The nation of Islam has taught that Islam itself, quote, came to destroy the white race and restore the black race to its superior place in the world, unquote. Nation of Islam children have been taught that, quote, America was the most vile and wicked nation on earth, and white people were devils and authors of all manner of wickedness, unquote. This is some of the things that even within the nation of Islam of yesteryear have begun to teach and foster upon their own children. Now, Elijah Muhammad's son began to distance himself from many of these extremes, and he even broke away from Louis Farrakhan. And he has a very, very small movement, even though it's probably that which is far, far less radical than Louis Farrakhan has been over these years. His particular group, Elijah Muhammad, they changed their name. They're not the Nation of Islam anymore. They went away from all of these racist ideas, the superiority of the black race, and they have sort of marginalized themselves now into a very, very small group. Louis Farrakhan, because he's a very charismatic leader, he began to promote this Nation of Islam idea, all of these radical ideas, began to foment so many African Americans into believing that Islam itself is synonymous with his ideas. And in turn, so many African Americans have been tragically influenced and brought in as converts to the nation of Islam. You say, why is that important to us? Well, because even in Little Rock, Arkansas, especially, and in so many other places where there's already some degree of racial tension, this is, for some, a very appealing kind of religion. They've been oppressed, they've been distressed, they've been downcast, They've been treated in horrible ways, and in so many ways that has been true of their heritage. 
that they, in fact, find this very appealing because it allows them to say, we want to be on top for a while. We want to dictate what goes on. We want to say what the white man can or cannot do. We want to be able to reverse all of this. Boy, if you've ever seen Louis Farrakhan, I've seen him on television. I've, I've listened and watched an actual uh, hour-long speech by him. And he has very, very racist ideas. Very, very dangerous man. You remember a couple of years ago that the news followed him very intently because he went to Saudi Arabia and Libya and Egypt and Syria and he tried to drum up support for the nation of Islam. He tried to do all he could to bring all of those who would either be of darker skin on the Middle East side or those of African-American descent, even in Africa itself, and certainly in the United States of America, together against the white race. But I want to hasten to say that that, in the minds of every Islamic person outside of the nation of Islam, is to be rejected. Many, many of these splinter groups of Islam would reject out of hand that very, very radical idea of Louis Farrakhan and his followers. So, how do we wrap this up? How do we come to a place where we understand our role in it? Well, it's interesting. In George Brazel's book, he begins to answer, answer a number, ask a number of questions about how Islam is to be grappled with. He says this, The following questions and challenges are constantly voiced today about the religion Islam and the people called Muslims. He says, What was the relationship of the worldview of the Prophet Muhammad and to Judaism and Christianity of his time? Where did Muhammad gain his information about Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and the Bible? Was it from Allah, angels, his travels, Jews, and Christians of his time? What are the grounds for the Muslim belief that Jesus did not die on a cross when history and historians confirm it? In the 100 years after the death of Muhammad, how did Islam advance so rapidly and so far into the Middle East, North Africa, Spain, Persia, and India? Was it by a holy warfare, a jihad? Did people voluntarily accept Islam or were they coerced? During the dark ages of Christianized Europe, what was the greatness of Islamic civilization and why? What were the advances in Islamic science, art, medicine, culture? Why were they more advanced than in Europe? What was the genius of Damascus and Baghdad and Cairo? How have the Christian Crusades influenced the Islamic world? What did Christians do to Muslims? What did Muslims do to Christians? Why have the Muslims never forgotten? Why have the words terrorists and militant been associated with Muslims in the mass media? What kind of Muslim groups accept responsibility for violent acts? Do the teachings of the Quran and Islamic tradition justify these acts? How does Islam perceive itself in relation to other religions? What is the perception when and where Islam is the dominant religion? What is this perception when and where it is one of among other religions in a, religi in a religiously pluralistic society? Does Islam allow freedom of religion and religious liberty? What does Islam mean when it says there is no compulsion in religion? Do Muslims believe Islam is the only true religion and all others are false? Can a Muslim become a Jew or a Christian or a Hindu without persecution from Islam? What is the meaning of political Islam and religious Islam and what are differences between them, if any? 
Is Islam a theocratic religion? Is Islamic political philosophy? Is the Quran and the Constitution for law and order in the society valid? Is one born a Muslim? How does this affect one's citizenship and one's religion? How does one become a Muslim? By birthright, by conversion, by adoption? Once a Muslim, is one always a Muslim? In a Muslim nation, can a non-Muslim serve in the military or marry a Muslim or be a bona fide citizen? When a spokesperson, spokesman for the Hezbollah, the party of God, speaks, what authority does he have in relation to Islam? Does he represent Allah, Islam, a few Muslims, an Islamic nation? In a world of nation-states, how does Islam address the issue of theocracy, separation of church and state, religion and politics, and freedom of religion? Why did Ayatollah Khomeini call for returning to the constitution of Medina? What religious, political, and cultural meanings does Islam attach to the city of Jerusalem and to the land of Palestine? Is Jerusalem an object of jihad, holy war? What is the meaning of Jerusalem compared to Mecca and Medina? Why does Islam bar non-Muslims from the city of Mecca? If Muslims controlled Jerusalem, would they allow non-Muslims inside? What is jihad anyway, holy war, according to the teachings of the Quran and the Islamic tradition? Who can declare jihad officially? What are the criteria for jihad? Why does one Muslim leader declare jihad against another Muslim leader? What are Islamic views on sexuality, gender roles, marriage, family? Does Islam speak with one voice on these matters? Are there differences between Quranic Islam and folk Islam on these subjects? Are Muslim women required to wear a veil? Can a Muslim have several wives? What does Islam teach about the role of women in family and society, divorce, homosexuality, abortion, contraception, polygamy, AIDS, and suicide? What is appropriate and taboo in greeting Muslims? A handshake? Words? Why does Islam prohibit accepting interest on loans? Do Muslims use contracts in business deals, or is their word enough? What legitimizes a Muslim group among other Muslim groups? How do various groups of Muslims relate to each other? Can one group declare jihad against another? Why do Sunnis fight Shiites? Iraqis fight Iranians? Muslims fight Iraqis? What are the similarities, differences, and relationships among these groups? Sunni, Shiite, Sufi, Ahmadiyya, Nation of Islam, Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestine Liberation Organization, Alawite, and Wahhaba. Various leaders of Islamic nations or Muslim groups often speak in the name of Islam. Is one more legitimate or acceptable than the others? How have Islamic traditions related to the following? King Hussein of Jordan, President Saddam Hussein of Iraq, President Hassad of Syria, President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt, King Fahd of Saudi Arabia, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, President Raf Sajani of Iran, Yasser Arafat, Wallace Dean Muhammad, and Louis Farrakhan. Why did Muslims come to America? Who are black Muslims about whom one reads in the press? What do Elijah Muhammad, Wallace Muhammad, Malcolm X, Louis Farrakhan have in common, or what are their differences? What is the meaning for American society and religions in America when scholars say Islam will be the second largest religion in America in the near future? What, if any, challenges do Muslims face in the United States? What are Muslims' strengths and weaknesses? How is Islam in America related to worldwide Islam? Now you know why I said this is so complex. And this is why when you turn on your news at the end of a hard day and you hear all these Muslim names and all these Muslim countries and all kinds of unrest and all kinds of issues and fighting and infighting and differences and holy wars, jihad, what do we make of all this? 
And more importantly, how do we witness to our neighbor who might be a Muslim just across the street? What do we say to them? How do you evangelize them? What would be your answer to some of their questions about Muhammad being the prophet and Jesus being a prophet but not God? Well, maybe those are some of the answers, certainly not all of them, that we'll be able to deal with next time. Let's pray. Father, when we go through a list like that, a list of 20 questions, as expansive and detailed and intricate and complex as all of those questions are, and every one of them certainly is, we're reminded of the Apostle Paul's words, who is adequate for these things? Lord, how can we understand this very complex religion? Who is going to help us work through all of the multifaceted nature of it? And Lord, it's not enough for us just to say, I won't, I can't, I don't have the time, I don't have the effort, I don't have the desire. Lord, we can't say that because if in fact by the year 2020, all of the major urban centers of our country will be predominantly Muslim. We will be forced to understand and to grapple with this fast-growing religion. Lord, it's not even an option for us. And because it isn't an option, we pray that you would help us. Please grant us favor. Please give us direction and guidance so that we might be able to both understand and then to reach out to these, our Muslim neighbors. Lord, I pray that you would help us with fear, I pray that you would help us with a lack of understanding. I pray that you would guide and direct me as I attempt to even work my way through all of the theology, all of the customs, all of the culture, so that I might be able to present to our people something that would be a summation that would be clear and cogent that would arm us in some way to defend our faith against this encroaching enemy. And I pray, Father, that you would allow us to use our times together on Sunday evening as a framework. And I pray that you would allow several who are among us, who are far more capable than I, to study and to read and to learn and to be able to help me and others in our own fellowship. How do we defend our faith against the second fastest growing religion in the world? How do we defend our faith against that which is coming so fast upon us? How can we be prepared in such a way as to honor you? Oh Lord, I pray that you would give us this gift. That you would make us adequate for these things by your Holy Spirit. 
and by our hard work. I pray that you would allow us, each one of us, not to be intimidated, but to take our Bibles from an offensive viewpoint and to learn and study, but not to stick our heads in the sand in a defensive way and not to react against those who would come to us and knock on our door or who would work with us and to tell us that they are Muslim and to begin to engage us in dialogue. Lord, as I talked with Joe Girk earlier this evening and he told me I work with a Muslim and he begins to talk with me about what he believes, Lord, there's an opportunity and so many, of other, uh, so many others of us no doubt have opportunities as well to work with and to live beside these who are of the Islamic religion. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us that word. Give us diligent study. Allow us to know what we believe and allow us to defend when we are attacked. And don't allow us to see them as anything other than an opportunity to reach. And even though it is the great enemy of Christianity, may we, like you, God, love our enemy and pray for them and reach out to them in love, knowing that ultimately the truth of your word will win the day and that you will give us the privilege of leading some of them to a saving knowledge of yourself. What a joy that will be. May you bring it to us because it honors you. In Christ's name, amen.